Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Second Peter 2, 1 through 10. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow in their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, Verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented, or he was, yeah, tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. That's where we'll end. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. As I've been saying, the letters were written to churches in Asia Minor and written on, on Peter's, especially Second Peter, on his uh, deathbed or at least his, 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 his uh, concluding of his life, both Peter and Paul will be martyred shortly after this book by the emperor of Rome. His name is Nero. And Peter's first letter was, was pastoral in nature, an encouragement to the people of God to stand firm in their persecution, in their suffering, and keep their eyes on Jesus, that their salvation has been eternally secured, and that their hope would be in the being born again to a living hope and the future of Christ's return and setting up and establishing His kingdom. The second letter, though, is more polemic than pastoral. It's, it's argumentative because false teachers, of which we will see clearly today, have infiltrated the church, and Paul is Peter is going to deal with them head on. And sometimes heretics and false teachers need to be dealt with head on. Sometimes antagonists in the church who look to destroy and cause divisions need to be dealt with head on. Last week, Peter began to lay the foundation against these teachers and their deception. Because he said earlier in chapter 1 that, that the righteousness of Christ is his faith and that his faith, like our faith, is in the righteousness of what Christ has done, that he alone lived a perfect life, therefore he alone can atone for sin. He alone can reconcile sinful man with the holy God. Peter stresses the importance in the the middle of chapter 1 of living a godly life, of of growing spiritually. He says supplement your faith. He gives us seven of them so that we can be fruitful and, and, and effective in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. One can't live a life characterized by rebellion and be secure in their salvation and be fruitful and, and, and helpful in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week we recall the transfiguration of Jesus. The occasion when Peter, James, and John went up to the mountain and Jesus Christ was transfigured before them. Right? It was, it was, it was a time when Jesus just 
you know, revealed or they got a glimpse of, of His intrinsic glory as, as the veil of His humanity was lifted. We talked about that last week. And Peter's point by bringing up that event was to say first that Jesus was God. That just like the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament uh, is the presence of God, that Jesus' intrinsic glory poured forth through His humanity, showed forth that He was God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. The second point of that event that Peter talks about the transfiguration in chapter 1 was to show that Jesus is the true King, that He will come back, He will return and establish His eternal kingdom. Those two points are very important because that's what the false teachers were teaching against, that He wasn't God, that He wasn't going to return, that there will not be judgment. And Peter went to go on to tell us that even though that experience, that transfiguration that he observed but was an eyewitness of on the mountain, even though that was true and even though he interpreted the event correctly, he said, we have something that is more sure. More sure. Don't miss that. Chapter 1, verse 20. That the prophecy of Scripture, the Word of God, is not coming from someone's own interpretation, verse 21, but prophecy was the production not by the will of man, but men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Peter's referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. The New Testament wasn't completed yet. But in 2 Timothy, we have the assurance that all Scripture is God-breathed. That all Scripture is the very breath of God. And that brings us to our text this morning, chapter 2. And, and Peter goes on to tell us why it's so important for you, for us, for them, to realize that we need to grow in our faith, that we need to have the authoritative guide, the Word of God, teaching us, revealing to us who God is, what God has done in the Gospel, what God expects, what God's going to do. Now remember, when the Bible was written, it was not written in the original text with chapter breaks. You know, chapter 1, Paul didn't get, Peter didn't get to this place to go, okay, chapter 2. He didn't do that. It was a letter. Okay? But chapters and verses, numbers of verses came later on, centuries later, just to help us find our way and to study together. So chapter 1 and chapter 2, uh, you know, it, it kind of breaks in your mind because you're looking at it, but there's really no break in it. Because what, what Peter's doing is he's saying there are true prophets of God, see that, verse 20 and 21, who speak from God, who've been moved along by the Holy Spirit, so they're actually breathing the Word of God, they're giving you what God wants you to know, and yet there are false prophets who are not speaking the Word of God. They're not telling the truth. Okay? They're, they're false ones speaking. So you see the connection between chapter 1 and chapter 2. I don't want you to miss that, okay, as we move forward into chapter 2. And we'll see it under two descriptions or two headings, okay? So there's people that speak from God. There are people that don't speak from God. There are those that have been moved along by the Spirit and have been, spo- have been spokesmen or, or prophets of God. And there are those who say they are, but they're not. Okay, we'll see their characteristics, what the false prophets and teachers look like, their deceptive beliefs, their sexual immorality, and their greedy exploitation. There's, there's something for us to think about, huh? How'd you like to live like that? And then we'll see their consequences, their judgment, and then we'll end with our rescue. So if you're taking notes, that's where we're going. Two points, a couple of sub-points, their characteristics. Look with me again to verse 1. False prophets arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. What Peter's saying, we had nothing new here, what he's, what he's saying. There's nothing new. There have been false prophets that among the people of God before. He's talking about Old Testament false teachers that were risen up in Israel. 
Just as, now talking to them, as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Okay? So that's, that's what he said. These are the characteristics. Um, Edmund Hybert in his commentary says, Only Christ's withering woes on hypocritical leaders in Matthew 23 and the parallel picture of the epistle of Jude convey the same denunciation of false teachers contained in this chapter. What he's saying is there are places in Scripture where stuff like this has to be taught, has to be said. And you may be thinking, you know, why can't we all just get along? You know, why does there have to be this pointed message of liar and heretic and false teacher? Can't we just get all get along? And Jesus would say no. Jude and Peter would say no. There are false teachers in the world. There are false teachers and they're wicked and they're harmful and they need to be exposed. So let me just say a couple of things quickly when we talk about false teachers and prophets. We're going to get into this. Let me just, let me just, let me just say uh, a couple of things. First, let me state the obvious. In order to have false teachers, in order to have heresies, in order to have error, there has to be truth. And I know for some of you young people who are in the universities where they tell you all truth is relative, that it's, 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 it's dependent on community, it's dependent on culture, it's dependent on society norms, not according to God. Because he says there are those who are teaching falsehood, therefore there must be a truth, that, an objective truth, in order to have falsehood. And for those who say, no, truth is relative, it depends on what you think it is, well... That's an absolute statement as well, okay? So you're saying the same thing we're saying, you're just saying it wrong, okay? So <laughs> Peter says the Word of God, it's more sure, you know what I mean? It's more sure. He tells us how to live, he tells us, you know, what we need to do, he tells us what to add to our faith, he tells us all these things. So there has to be truth in order to be false. The second thing I want to point out to you, that false teachers are out there, then and now, and if we get a thrill and we just enjoy it, and we are looking for every time someone wants to like mess up, and we want to jump right in and point it out to them, something's wrong with you. There, there are churches, there are teachers that all they do is look for something wrong. There are, more of, there, there are churches and their teachings more about what they're against than what they're for, and their churches and their teachers and the people that follow these people are really more pharisaical than anything else. Because... They got the truth, and they're always looking to point. So if you get a charge and you get a thrill out of just pointing out everybody's wrong heretical teaching, and that's all you do, there's a problem. The last thing I want to talk about before we get into the text, and this is important, is sometimes the most loving thing you can do. And kids, I, I, you know, young people, when your parents are talking to you and they're, and they're warning you, you know, I want to tell you that sometimes the most loving thing you can do is warn somebody. Is warn them. Sometimes the most positive thing you can do is go negative. Sometimes, particularly, I'll give you two incidents. Once, one is, for the woman who is pregnant and thinking, you know what, I think I'll have an abortion, to show them what an aborted baby looks like, hopefully will change their mind. Going negative might be positive. Sometimes taking a young kid who wants to to, to uh, abuse his body, taking him to a hospital and showing 
You know, you see the commercials on TV and people speaking through their neck and, and what, what smoking and other things can do. Sometimes going negative is going positive. Sometimes the best thing and the most loving thing you can do is warn somebody. And that's exactly what's happening. In chapter 2, Peter wants his readers to draw the conclusion that not everybody who speaks, who says they speak from God is from God. Not everybody does that. And he wants to remind them that this isn't new. There were Old Testament prophets. There were teachers. There were shepherds who were false shepherds that were leading people astray. He says false teachers arose among the people just like they're among you. And the way they work is through secret, look at it says, through secrecies of destructive heresies. Through secrecy literally means among you. In other words, what Peter is saying, they're not so much outside the church, they're in the church, they're among you. Peter, excuse me, Paul warns the Ephesian elders in chapter 20. He says, and he's in ministry with these elders, he's, he's loved them, they've loved him, they've served together. He gathers them on the shore and he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock from among your own selves. Men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. He says, be on the alert. And the implication is, they're going to rise up destructive heresies and do it in an underhanded way. Look at it said, secretly bringing in. So someone that's not going to come to a church membership class, sit down and say, right on the high, my name is Lou, I'm a heretic. Like, it's not going to happen. Like, they're not going to, like, make themselves known right away. They're going to, they're going to introduce, secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now, when we talk about heresies... Uh, what heresies is, or by definition, is teachings and ideas that are inconsistent, listen, inconsistent with the revealed truth of God. Particularly things that are being taught about the gospel, about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And there's a sense where there's heresies that, that violate the word of God, that violate the clear teaching of God, that in a general sense, where there's all kinds of heresies and teaching going on in our world, whether it's the unbelief of the agnostics or you know the teaching of the um, um, uh, the, the atheist on, on how to self-save themselves, kind of like you know this is what you need to do to to enjoy life. This is what you need to do for all those kind of things. Whether it's the the agnostics or the atheists or the the Eightfold Path of Buddhas or the Five Pillars of the Faith of Islam. There's a sense where heresy in a general sense is that which is contradictory of the clear teaching of Scripture on important issues like salvation, like the Scripture, like who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. And there are those outside the, 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 you know, the, the people of God that are introducing secret heresies on how you need to be saved on how you should relate to God, on how you should know God, on how you need to have your sins forgiven in a general sense. But Peter is talking about here more is in a specific sense within the church, within the church of God. Those views that are destructive, those views that have an eternal weight to them, that's what we would consider heresy. See, there's a difference between heresy and error. There's a huge difference between heresy and error. That which has an eternal impact that is false would be considered heretical. 
The problem that the churches have and has had in the, in the centuries, and you see it even today, is they, we don't keep the main thing the main thing, and then we convolute the main with the minor, the, you know, the primary things with the secondary things, and then we throw the word heresy around without really giving a whole lot of credence to the word and what it really means. I mean, there are things that you and I believe that are wrong, unless you are perfect and know everything. Maybe one of two of you in here. But some of us believe things that are wrong, but they're not really going to harm you. Right? Some of you think, you know what? It's not a big deal to wash your hands, uh, you know, before you eat. And, and although you should, um, it probably is not going to kill you. And heresies are things that have an eternal weight to them. Like, where do I go when I die? What did Jesus really do? How can I relate to God? Heresies have to do with primary issues, not secondary issues. You know how I decipher it? If it has something to do with the gospel. If it has something to do with the gospel, that's a primary issue for me. Secondary things are not that important. I'm not going to argue with you. But things that are heresy, things that are contradictory to the gospel on who God is, what God has done. If someone's teaching a view of the gospel on how God rescues, redeems, reconciles, forgives sinners that is contrary to the teaching of the gospel, they are considered heretics. People get silly. People want to fight over over secondary issues like jeans, band. And, And right away they want to you know, gnaw their teeth, and they want to fight over such things like that. And, and that other, other churches don't want to really stand for anything. We hold to the truth and the fundamentals of Orthodox Christianity in a closed hand. In the open hand is the methods on how you carry out the closed hand principles. That's a good way to know between the primary and the secondary issues. Some of the primary things that we hold here, and we will closed-handed, is... The nature of God, the triune nature of God, the atonement on the cross, the humanity of Jesus, the virgin birth, the sinless life, the resurrection from the grave, the bodily return of Jesus, closed-handed issues. And those who teach opposite of that are what Peter would consider and what we need to consider as heretics, that Jesus is not God, that's heresy. That the Scriptures are not the Word of God. That's heresy. That Jesus lived only as an example to show how to love somebody and His death on the cross was not an atonement for sins. That's heresy. Paul wrote in Galatians 1.6 that he's so astonished that he would quickly deserting. He tells the church, you're so quickly deserting Christ who called you by His grace to a, to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. He says, if an angel comes who preaches something contrary to the gospel, let him be accursed. He's talking about adding to the gospel. Do you know, and I I just looked this up because I didn't know this, do you know that there are whole denominations that teach, that claim to be Christians, that teach heretical views? I went online this week and looked at the United Pentecostal Church International. They teach a heretical view called modalism. It's been heretical for 1,600 years that God exists as one person and takes on different modes. That in Jesus, the Father was in Jesus. That there is no distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit, one God and three persons. That's heresy. 
They teach that you have to be baptized in water to be saved. And that you have to speak in tongues as a sign that you've been born again and saved. That, that's heretical teaching. When it has to do with the gospel, we say, absolutely, we're speaking out against it. It's on their website. You, you, know, you can look it up if you like. Now, heresy is not making mistakes. I know when I was first a believer in Christ, maybe my first couple of weeks, I remember uh, being discipled by this man named Bill Bascom. And I remember I was a Christian. I was about three weeks. And I remember telling him that, you know, God does not love everyone. And he looked at me. He's like, what do you mean? I said, God doesn't love everyone. I'm thinking I was such a wicked man and, and God showed his love for me and everybody else was wicked. God don't love. That's my deduction. I don't know what I was talking about. And he looked at me and he goes, that's what are you talking about? Let me open up John 3.16, which I didn't know what John 3.16 at the time. I was a new Christian. I didn't know anything about a Bible. But God so loved the world. I'm like, hmm, that wasn't right then. No, I don't think it was. I'm like, all right, I'm trying to figure it out. That's not heresy. That's just stupid, okay? (laughs) Heresy's not making a mistake. If you went back and got all the CDs, I've said some really stupid things. People make mistakes and they talk out their mouth and they haven't put their brain in gear. That's not heresy. What Peter is talking about is heretical teachers coming in destructively teaching contrary things to the gospel. At that point, Peter says, mark them. This is who they are. It's not about using hymnals. It's not about whether having drums, whether you wear a cape, a suit, or jeans. It's about the gospel. How do you have your sins forgiven? How do you get to know God? How are you made righteous in His eyes? By faith, through grace, right? Through grace, by faith, in Christ alone. That, that's the important things. He says, look what he says, They are denying the Master who bought them, bringing them upon themselves swift destruction. The word Master is a strong word for the sovereign owner. It's where we get our word despot from. It, it doesn't have the negative condemnations that we have today. It has, in that day, it was talking about the sovereign Lord. Talking about ownership. Okay, And what he's saying is they have denied or they have, he says, yeah, denied the master who bought them. And what Peter is saying is in the Old Testament, Israel, who was bought, redeemed from slavery on the Pharaoh, was brought out of slavery and was bought by God, brought out and, and redeemed by God. There were some that were brought out that were not really true believers in Yahweh. But he rescued the whole, the whole of Israel. He says, some of you in the church, same thing. God bought, died for our sins, right? Jesus died for the sins of all mankind. Yet there's some of you who are just sheep, uh, excuse me, wolves. You're wolves in the church. So in one sense, Jesus died for all the sins of the world. And in another sense, it applies and is effectual to those who belong to him. And he says there are some in the church that look like they've been bought by the blood. They haven't really. And you will know them by their behavior, by their immorality, he says, and by their, their destructive heresies in which they teach. It shouldn't be a shock. John, the apostle, writes this. Children, it's the last hour. And you heard that the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have already come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. Then he says, they went out from us, from the church, they went out from us, but they were not really part of us. For if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. So Peter's like, listen, there are going to be some, they're going to look like Christians, they're going to sound like Christians, 
But you know what? They're going to come in and they're going to bring in destructive heresies and teach contradictory to the orthodoxy of Christianity. Verse 2. It says, many will become. Look what it says in verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Sensuality. NIV has shameful ways. It's talking about sinful, lustful, sexual perversion. We see that today. Many people want to, false, many people want to follow false teachers and false prophets. Because you know what? You can have sex wherever you want. And whenever you want. Premarital sex, no problem. Same sex, no problem. It's okay. The Bible teaches heterosexual sex within marriage. But false teachers, they want to have many people follow them. And they'll say whatever they need to say so they have this following. And many times it comes out in sexual impurities. God gave us sex to enjoy for procreation within heterosexual marriage. And let me make this perfectly clear. God loves everyone, and God forgives all sins, but genuine Christians do not call sin good. Heretics do. I'm sinful. I know areas I need to repent. I'm not going to take the Scripture and the Word of God and say, you know what, it says this, but now you know what, don't follow that. That's okay. That's a heretic. We don't come under the Scripture. Scripture comes over us. Heretics will tell you, nope, you, you just follow what I say. You just do as I tell you to do. Don't let the Scripture speak to you. You speak to the Scripture. And when people abandon the standard of God, they lower their standard of morality. And, and false teachers says are successful. There are many crowds come to hear them, and the, and the proof of their authenticity is not the crowds that they have. There, there, are, there are thousands of people following heretics. Paul wrote these words to Timothy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I can do that? Oh, that's great. I can do that? That's great. You're telling me what I'm doing is right? I'm following you. That's what he says. And will they will turn away from listening to the truth, wandering off into myths. Paul tells Titus, they profess to know God, the heretics, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Peter simply says they blaspheme the way of truth. You know what that means? That means they they trash the reputation of God. They slander and make a mockery of Christ. So when heretics stand up and they say, come to Jesus, you'll have no pain. You'll have only gain. You'll have no hurt. You will live a life of, of total, you know, prosperity. You're a winner. God created you a winner. Deceptive. Deceptive. You know, they promote prosperity, but they're the only ones prospering. So, you know, they have deceptive beliefs, they're sexual morality. Look at verse 3. They have greedy. They exploit those. They're greedy. Greedy, false teachers. I mean, I almost sound silly saying that. You know, it's the air conditioning doghouses. It's the multiple jets. You know, it's the send me $50, I'll send you this handkerchief that I wipe my brow with. Like, why would I want your dirty handkerchief for? I don't even understand that. Right? But, like old prophets, God raises up Micah, and Micah says, talk to the false prophets. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priest's instructions are for a price, 
and their prophets practice divination for money. Nothing different. There are those who are all about the money. Look what they use. False words, he says. The word plastos. False words. It, 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 is, it is saying something that is, that is, that is plastic. That is, it is not real. It's not true. Warren Worsby, uh, I love Warren Worsby's commentaries. Um, he writes this and he nails it. He says, false teachers use our vocabulary, but they do not use our dictionary. They talk about salvation inspiration with great words of the Christian faith, but they do not mean what, they, what we mean. Immature and untaught believers hear these preachers, read their books, and think that these men are sound in their faith, but they are not. If you talk to a Jehovah Witness, teaching is heretical, if you talk to them and you ask them, who is Jesus, they'll tell you he's the Son of God. Hmm. They'll even tell you he is the Son of Man, as two titles that Jesus used. And you'll be like, really? So you, you believe the same thing I believe. No, they don't. They have the same vocabulary, but they've got a different dictionary. They're worshiping a different Jesus. They do not affirm everything what the Bible teaches, nor do they affirm what Jesus taught. When Jesus said he was the Son of Man, you know what he was pointing to? Daniel 7. You can read it. It talks about the Son of Man having an eternal kingdom and an a, 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 a everlasting dominion, that there will be tongues and tribes who will serve and worship him. That's only God. So, you, you know, you've got to be careful. They use plastic words. And in the end, look what awaits them, judgment. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Dr. Gene Green is Professor Wheaton. He says this, Wrong belief leads not only to wrong conduct, social rapture, rupture, excuse me, rupture, but also to eternal separation from God. These heresies are not merely harmful, they also lead to final doom. So they are secretly bringing heresies, mostly about the gospel, things of eternal impact, who Jesus is, the scriptures, uh, the virgin birth, the, the sinless life, the atoning work. They'll twist all that stuff. They'll do it so that they can grow and have a flock and promote their, their sinful lifestyle. About the money. Send me $50. You plant your seed today. Oh, it kills me. All right, I don't, want to get, I don't want to get too crazy here. All right, so secondly and last is the consequences, okay? Look with me to verse 4. Now, the logic of these passages, and I want you to think through this with me, the logic of these verses goes something like this. God's future judgment of the wicked is certain. It's not idle. He just said that. Because, because God has constantly throughout history judged the wicked. Okay, that's what he's saying. And Peter uses three ancient examples as proof to prove his point. Okay? He uses three, first, uh, three examples. First, the judgment of angels. Secondly, is the worldwide destruction during the flood. And third, is the fiery hot tar raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? And what he does, which is so cool, because he's a pastor at heart, what he does is he also talks about the righteous on how they can be guarded, how they can, be, uh, they can escape judgment. He kind of mixes that in while giving these uh, three examples. So look at with me at all three real quick here. First four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the final judgment. He knows how, right? To keep you. So what he's saying is there was a time where angels were judged and angels were committed to change on the gloomy darkness to be kept until 
the judgment. The question that we have is, what's he talking about? Where did this incident take place? So you might have a study Bible. It might say Genesis 6 is what Peter's talking about. The incident where, where the sons of God slept with the daughters of man. That might be in your Bible. Genesis 6. And they're saying that the, the sons of God were angels. The daughters of men were, were, were women. And they, they had sex and they procreated. I don't believe that to be the case. We talked about that in Genesis 6. Because angels don't procreate. It's that simple. We went back in Genesis 6. If you look at that, we have the tapes on series. If, you, if you're interested in that text, maybe you're like, oh, what is that all about? You can look it up. Genesis 6 is on our website. I believe what Peter's talking about is when Lucifer fell from the heavens and he took a third of the angels with him. Okay, you can find that in Ezekiel. You can find that in Isaiah. Um, both incidents talk about this Lucifer who was, who was a, 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 a host, a, an angel, a mighty angel. And he tried to, to be God because of pride. And, and he tried to take the throne of God. And he was judged and he was sent out of heaven and cast out. And a third of his uh, angels went with him. And I think Peter's saying, you know what? God judged them. God took some of those angels, put them in a gloomy darkness until the final judgment. And that's the point. Whatever incident this Peter might be talking about, the point is God will judge. If he judged angels, he will judge man, whenever that incident might be. The second thing he points to, verse 5, is about Noah, who's a herald of righteousness. You know the story. We went through that in, in Genesis as well. Noah preaching repentance and faith. Faith builds this huge wooden box. People are like, what is that? You know, and he's like, you know, you need to repent. You need to come on board. They're like, you're a crazy old man in this dry desert. And all of a sudden it begins to rain. And what does this wood thing do? starts floating. No one's spared. None of the ungodly will escape except Noah and his family. And what's so cool about this, I think Peter brings this up because there's Noah, seven other people, and the whole world is judged but eight. And I think Peter's pointing to this, telling the people in the churches, listen, I know it seems that these false teachers and these heretical teachers are, are gaining flocks, gaining fame, having sex, and all, you know, they're, they're exploding, but you know what? God knows what he's doing. Only eight were saved in that day. God knows how to do it. God knows how to judge. God knows how to rescue. So he says, angels, Noah, verse 6 through 8 says, turns to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, when God made them ashes and he condemned them to extinction. Okay, you know that story is too. We looked at Genesis 19. God rained down hot blacktop, you know, fire on these cities. And, and, and I, you know, we talked about righteous Lot. And, and here Peter tells us that, you know, Lot had a torment going on in his soul. He says, there was a time when God judged there was a time when God judged. And it's not a judgment just on a one-time, uh, excuse me, a one-time judgment that that's the end of it. He says, no, it's an example, he says, to those who live ungodly lives. It's not just, it's not just warning that it happened once. It's warning that it's going to continue. It's going to happen. And, and at the end of time, there will be judgment. But as I said earlier, Lot and Noah stand as an example to us that God will not only punish the wicked, but He will rescue the righteous from judgment. That's the point. And He wants to comfort His people. He wants to comfort His brothers and sisters, knowing that, the, which He said in the chapter 1, that the righteousness of Christ covers us. 
And if you're covered in the righteousness of Christ, God knows how to judge and to rescue those who are covered in the righteousness of Christ. And he's showing them from the Old Testament how true this is. And to make it perfectly clear, verse 9 and 10, let me turn to 9 and 10. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under judgment until the day of judgment. It's the final judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of the filing passion and despise authority. One thing heretics love to do is despise authority. They don't want to submit to anyone. They don't like to be told they are wrong. They don't want to be judged. Right? They want to live in their fame, sex, and money. And Peter here doesn't just mean that God knows how to judge or that he will judge. It means he has done it in the past. And he will do it in the future. Jesus himself talks about it in Luke 17. This is what he says. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and, and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Jesus says, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus' own words. Judgment of fallen angels, judgment on Noah's day, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah is not complete. They're awaiting final judgment. The book of Revelation tells us about final judgment. Those who are Christ into the eternal kingdom, those who do not belong into eternal damnation. That's what Jesus is talking about. I don't want to end the sermon on that. Verse 10. There will be judgment. It is inevitable. But it, listen, it is also escapable. Go back to verse 1. It says that the false teachers were denying the master who bought them. Remember that verse? What Peter is saying, what Peter is referring to, is the work of Jesus the Redeemer. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. He came to die. He came to redeem. Redemption is synonymous with liberation and freedom, rescue from bondage. It had to do with the slave market, when a slave would be bought back from the slave market. But primarily it means that, and Peter's talking about, and, and what most Jews would understand is when, when, when God bought, redeemed, rescued Israel under Pharaoh in the exodus of Egypt. The Bible tells us, I'll make this clear, the Bible tells that sin brings wrath. Sin brings judgment. And if we don't find rescue under the guilt of our sin, under the penalty of our sin, we will be punished, and Jesus says, forever. Because sin is an infinite offense against an infinite holy God. So the slavery and the bondage that we need ransoming from is, the slave, is to slavery of our sins and eternal punishment. But folks, listen to what Colossians says. That God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In Him, Ephesians 1 says, Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to His grace. Now, I want to wrap this all together. Now listen to me. Two more minutes. During the Exodus, 
you know the ninth, the ten plagues. The ninth plague was darkness. Darkness is a metaphor in Scripture of judgment. The tenth plague of the killing of the firstborn happened at night, more darkness. And when judgment came down on the world during the Exodus, during that first Passover, God's judgment came down and He judged sin and all the firstborn died except those who followed the instructions of God, slaughtered the lamb, put the blood over the doorstep, and the angel of death passed over. It wasn't simply because you're a Jew. Because when the judgment comes down, everyone is under judgment. It was only those who were, came under or sheltered by the blood of the lamb. By the blood of the lamb. Do you know, in Mark chapter 15... While Jesus was on the cross, the Bible says that the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. It was so dark that you could not even see the hand in front of your face. That darkness on the cross that shrouded the cross and the land where Jesus was crucified described the judgment against sin and our rebellion. God was saying in that darkness on the cross that our judgment for our sin was being purchased. That is precisely what Jesus was experiencing. What was coming down on Jesus was our judgment day. There was our sin, there was darkness, there was judgment, there was wrath. It was during those 180 minutes that Jesus became our sin payment and redeemed us. It was a God-sent judgment that shrouded the cross as the Son of God became our sin offering. Just as the Scriptures teach, for our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Judgment is inevitable, but it is escapable under the blood of the Lamb. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, in the midst of darkness, why have you forsaken me? During our judgment for our sin, Jesus was forsaken, Because we deserved to be deserted. He endured the darkness and abandonment and judgment so that we don't have to. He was forsaken that we might be forgiven. Jesus goes through the darkness, the wrath of God, the the coming payment for our sins. He took our payment for our sins so that we don't have to. He lived and died so that we can live. He was cursed that we might be blessed. Jesus becomes the ransom, the redeemer, who bought us through a huge sacrifice of his own life so that we can obtain and escape judgment. The question really for us is, are you a heretic? Are you running after false doctrine? Are you trying to save yourself? Or will you stand on the truth that judgment did come down? On Jesus for you, for me? Are you trusting in some other way for you to know God, to have your sins forgiven, to be reconciled, to be accepted, to be loved? Jesus is the only way. By faith through grace in Christ alone. No other way. You can't earn it. This table represents that. This table is a picture of the judgment of God on Jesus. The band's going to come up and we're going to repent of our sins.
Because it was Jesus who took our sin. The cup represents the blood that was shed, the bread, His broken body. Jesus on the cross, darkness over the land, our sin placed on Him, His payment for our sin received by the Father as He hung on the cross when the darkness dissipated and said, It is finished. Sin atoned for. Can't earn it. You can only receive it. So if you're here this morning and you've never taken communion as a Christian, I want to invite you to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, the work He had done on the cross for your sins. Give your life to Christ. Tell Him, I am a sinner. I be- I- you died in my place. Judgment for me. I receive what you have done. I trust in you and you alone. I'm not trying to save myself. I'm not going to believe false things. I'm going to trust in you and in what you've declared in your word and come and take communion. If you're a believer this morning and maybe you're being led astray, maybe, maybe you, there's some things that you are dabbling in that you need to just repent from and get back into the Scripture and read for yourself the truth and rely upon Christ alone. I want to invite you to repentance. The band's going to play. We're going to repent. We're going to put a, a, a shroud around our own hearts and confess sin and repent of sin. Then we're going to celebrate by taking the cup and taking the bread and, and enjoying God's forgiveness for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that although our sin deserves wrath, although our sin deserves judgment, Jesus, our good God and Savior, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, rose three days later from the grave and will forgive all sin for those who repent and turn to Him. Father, we pray that as the band is playing, as we sing, we will repent of our sins together as a body. And Lord, I pray for those who are here that may not know You, have not trusted You, have not uh, asked You into their life. I pray Your Spirit would show them their sin and show them Christ's glory. That He would do this for them. He would do this for us. And that they were bought with a price. And the price is the blood and life of Jesus Christ. So Father, we pray as we sing, as we just worship You, that our repentance would be deep, our faith would be strong, Your mercy and grace would be with us, and Lord, we would together partake of the Lord's Supper so that You would get glory and how wonderful and good You are. In Jesus' good name, Amen.